0: Bonnie McBird is the author of Art in the Blood, Unquiet Spirits, The Devil's Due, and The Three Locks. These are novels of Sherlock Holmes and John Watson. Her new novel is What Child is This? Thank you for joining me, Bonnie.
1: Well, thank you. It's nice to be here.
0: Let's talk about what these books are for me. They are comfort reading, and that's an important genre For us, I think that's what brings a lot of people to reading. What does that word mean to you?
1: Well, comfort reading. It's interesting you say that because um, that's not everybody's description of Sherlock Holmes. Most people think of it as, you know, uh, mystery, detective crime, et cetera. And they often have like an outre, scary element to them. You know, there's, uh, you know... I don't know, kind of like snakes coming down, you know, uh, bell pulls and people's cutting ears off, you know, the hound of the Baskervilles, you know, the footprints of a gigantic cat. There's all kinds of eerie, strange, and, you know, murderous things. So you don't think of it initially as comfort reading, but it is. I think Sherlock Holmes is the ultimate comfort reading because uh, you know that when you set out, and join John Watson and and Sherlock Holmes on an adventure, the crazy stuff is likely to happen, but you know that that there's going to be a triumph of of, uh, the hero, the scientific reasoning, and the the deductions he does, and, and his heroic actions, you know, are going to pay off, you can Guarantee that Sherlock Holmes will set things right. We don't have that guarantee in real life, so there's something very comforting about that. So it's like you—it's like you enter on a carnival ride and it's very scary. and You take quick turns and you think you're going to bash into the wall, but you know that you're going to arrive safely. So you can enjoy the scariness of the ride. So, so in, in a sense, it, um, most that kind of crime fiction is is a comfort uh, reading in a certain way, but in, in particularly Holmes is because. We also kind of glamorize the late Victorian era with its gaslight and you know and its foggy streets and then the fire in the grate and the you know the, the sounds of the horses clopping by you know we have a kind of um, romanticized image of this time and place and you know Holmes in his top hat and, and the things are sort of proper and so forth. Of course, it was chaos and crazy back then and. You know, I, I live in London now, and you know there's homeless in the in the doorsteps of a lot of shops. It's it's, it's you know it's tough. There's still a lot of poverty, but in Holmes' time, there were five times as many homeless people. There's really the discrepancy between the rich and the poor was even greater than it is now. So, <clears throat> partly our romanticized thing is, is, all, is an incomplete version. <laughs> but when you when you say comfort reading. It's like you package a thing for the, for consumption. And um, so I'd like to say that I, I, I want to fulfill that promise to the reader. I want to deliver uh, homes, delivering justice, delivering a solution and delivering justice. Now, in the original stories, they varied hugely in, their, um, in the, the level of violence, the level of horror or the level of frightening you know, elements. Uh, They varied quite greatly over the entire canon of Sherlock Holmes, written by Conan Doyle. So uh, he did one very famous Christmas one called The Blue Carbuncle. And there was definitely a mystery. There was a theft. There was a little bit of scariness, uh, but it wasn't violent. There was no blood and guts. (laughs) And so I decided when I set out to do this fifth book in my series, I have had plenty of uh, sort of scary and sometimes violent stuff in the other books. I decided that this Christmas book would be a little bit different, but um, so how to deliver a little bit of scariness, a little bit of mystery and urgency without being purposely violent. So that is something you have to read the book, to see how that was done, But but it was something I set out to do. And then I set out to go to set up two problems where you think, there, how can there be a good solution here? I mean, even if you figure out what's happening and who did what, I still don't see how there's going to be a good ending. And that that's the mystery of this particular book, is like how Sherlock Holmes through, through his, really his intelligence and his planning and his observations of people, arrives at a satisfying ending where it looks like there can't be one.
0: You know, um... One of the things that you are are just an absolute master at is something called pastiche, which is what these Sherlock Holmes books are. Um, H.P. Lovecraft famously invited other authors to join in his quote, universe, that's what we call it now, the Cthulhu Mythos, and contribute stories to that universe using kind of his stories and his setup. And many did, and that's another form of comfort reading for me. Uh Doyle, during his lifetime, did he ever encourage uh, other authors to write about his characters? And
1: <laughs> I don't think he did encourage it. It started, though, while he was still alive.
0: <laughs> oh, really? I did not <laughs> yeah, know that.
1: I, 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 there are people who are more uh, historically up on this than I am. Uh, but there there were a couple while he was still alive. And there are quite a few like immediately following There have been people writing in the style of Conan Doyle, basically since then, um, and you know he's uh, he's he's a wonderful model to try to emulate, and I would I would say he's much harder to emulate than people think because he's really really good, and um, so you know I've put a fair amount of study into what and how he did what he did, and I, I think that I'm a better writer for having done that. So so it's interesting because it is an a pastiche is an imitative art form. I mean, we are, uh, you know, it, I am I'm imitating another artist and I'm using his major characters. Besides that, I'm doing everything else is original. All the stories are original. The cases are original. And one of the promises I made to myself is every deduction was going to be original. It wasn't going to be one that was in in the in the canon. But But the point being, though, is that in order to emulate this well, I had to really understand how he told his stories and um, and and they were then I had to also do a little something to this because he wrote short stories and novellas. He wrote uh, 56 short stories and four novellas, but no full length novels. So my first um, four books have been full length novels. This fifth one is a novella really. Um, and But when you lengthen the structure from sh- the short stories that he was most famous for, um, you, you have to do some things to both extend it and make it work as a longer piece, but also keep it feeling like the originals. So the originals had tremendous, uh, what I call narrative drive. In other words, that page turning quality, is like, well, what's gonna happen next? And he had just, he was a genius at this. And um, and this is something that, you know, you you kind of find in screenwriting as well, because uh, I used to work in development at Universal for four years in, my, in the 70s. <laughs> that's how old I am, a long time ago. And I used to read a lot of scripts, uh, several a day, and many mm-hmm. on the weekend. and And, you know, when you have to do coverage of a lot of material, you very quickly discern which ones you want to keep turning the pages on. And so the, the magic of that quality is something that Conan Doyle has. And it's not um, easy to emulate because you can get all caught up in the Victorian language and these longer sentences and, the, you know, the vocabulary he used. And uh, it's very easy to suddenly get bogged down and so and forth. But he was a masterful storyteller, I think, because partly because he was a man of action in real life. He was a very athletic person. He sought adventure. He was probably a bit of an adrenaline junkie. The way he describes Watson, the Watson character, is like dying for adventure, basically. And I think, you know, was a bit like this. He was a very active person and that energy comes right onto the page. So he, unlike other um, uh, narrative writers of his time, he spent a lot less time waxing poetic about the weather and the settings and the, you know, and the philosophy they were in there and they were in there really brightly and succinctly, but, but they, he didn't spend a lot of page time on them. So he, he, it's kind of like haiku writing. It's kind of like putting a whole lot into fewer words. So uh, also he did another thing that was very different from, other writers of his time. He used dialogue a lot more than other writers of his time, which is again makes his work more quote cinematic. Uh, now, of course, his original works, or his original um Sherlock Holmes works, were not were predating cinema, so they weren't <laughs> really cinematic. There was no cinema. But as you know, eventually it overlapped a little bit with his later works, but but he wasn't obviously thinking cinema, yet, yet his his um the strongly visual quality and the use of so much dialogue is cinematic in it, in the way it reads. So, so there's a bunch of things like that. That um, he's he's just such a, a wonderful writer. And then the creation of these two indelible characters who have stood the test of time. And it's, you know, it's arguable that Sherlock Holmes is the single most famous fictional character of all time. You know, even I mean, all yeah. the world.
0: <laughs> I I would agree exactly he's he's the the first superhero <laughs> as yes, well
1: yes yes he is I think so too I mean his superpower being um his his brain <laughs> and um and then that's interesting too because uh, you write a really really smart character it's interesting I think that when you read a Conan Doyle short story or when you read sherlock Holmes you feel smart too uh because he pulls you along. Sherlock Holmes is the epitome of that. I mean, uh, but Watson's no dummy. He's not as smart as Holmes, but he's no dummy at all. And, and he pulls you into this world in a way that says, you, you, you understand what we're doing here. <laughs> and you are one of us. And, and that's a really good feeling for the reader. Doyle uh, never writes down to the reader. And some, some pastichers do because they like I'm smart enough to write Sherlock Holmes well let me you know (laughs) expound here but in fact in fact Conan Doyle didn't write down to his readers he was writing up to them and but he was the popular literature of the day he was he was mainstream as mainstream as you can get everybody read Sherlock Holmes you know kids and adults and wealthy people and poor people and educated people and less educated people and I mean he was he was so popular Uh, that's still true Yeah, that is still true. It is definitely still true.
0: You know, one of the things I think I really love about your books is you really have absolutely mastered, when I read your books, and and this one as well, um, you've mastered the feel of those books. When we immerse ourselves in that Sherlock Holmes, it's just like reading Doyle. Uh, for the 21st century here which is difficult because you have to make some you know allowances you have you change the language a bit you are not a Victorian gentleman living in the 1800s so uh, talk about you know writing in the future from the past for the future that's a that that's a really interesting kind of uh juxtaposition there you're reaching back in your are in the future his future he would have loved to have this science fiction weirdness that we live in today but um you're reaching back in the past to recreate that past for the future in a way the future can understand it and and grok it so I I don't know exactly what it is you do, but you do it exactly well. These are as fun, I think, for me as Sherlock Holmes. So, you know, every year I look forward to like a little kid. Oh, no, a new Sherlock Holmes novel is going to come out.
1: Oh, well, thank you. Thank you very much for that. Um, Yeah, I, when I sat down to do the first one, I thought, well, I'm going to try my goal is to emulate see if i can see if i can do this voice accurately um but of course i'm not Conan Doyle. i'm not a doctor i'm not a victorian gentleman i'm none of these things and it's now um but on the other hand i didn't want to use modern vernacular and and you know i wasn't writing a modern i was writing historical fiction and i wanted it to feel like historical fiction so i thought well okay but what's what if any um, things do I need to do to make that work now? And first of all, I thought not too many actually, because he still reads really well now. I mean, you can go right back to the originals and be sucked in, and, and you don't feel like oh, this is really ornate language. And I've, but, you know, frankly, uh, he used a larger vocabulary than modern-day popular fiction writers do, because the there was a there was a. Uh, a greater literacy among the educated people at that time so people had bigger vocabularies if they went to if they went to school that's dropped off a little uh, but i i just i'm not gonna i'm not gonna omit those words they're gonna be right in there um and and people can look them up because we have google sitting next to us at all times if they don't get that thing so i'm not going to write down to people if they don't understand this word so, so there was that. But I also decided that, okay, we have a shorter attention span now than we than people used to then because uh, because the nature of our culture has sped up things. Um, and so that was already in process though, even then, by the way, because in the 19th century, suddenly uh, train the train system that just blossomed over a period of very few years changed everything. So now everybody had to have a watch. And then now they were conscious of the time and then things. And then there was the postal service and you got a delivery like five times a day. And so you could instantly send letters across town. And things sped up uh, and the industrial revolution and trains really sped things up for, for people then. So we're in that in another speed up time. So I thought, OK, well, I might do one of the things I did consciously was I said I will occasionally use sentence fragments, which they he didn't do. So you know, not a full sentence with a subject and a verb. So sometimes I will use sentence fragments. I'm very aware that I do that, but I don't do it often, and I do it only when the uh, when there's action and the pacing requires it. So that's one of the very few accommodations I make. The other thing I do is I do annotations, <laughs> and and I think some people really enjoy this. Very few, because very few have <laughs> commented, but on my website there is a set of annotations for each book. I have to be honest, they're not all up for this last book yet, because I got delayed here. But, um, but I put annotations by the chapter. So there are things about um, places and people and objects and customs, and little little pictures and article, tiny little short articles. There are some past who have put those in the body of their book, but I feel like it disturbs the flow and doesn't feel like an album. So I don't do that. Uh, and I also, but I, I was inspired by Les Klinger's amazing annotated Sherlock Holmes, I don't give that, that several volume set.
0: Those are but, beautiful um,
1: books. It, it, it's so beautiful. And, and all those pictures and little annotations about what, it, you know, what does this mean? You know, where did people keep their, if they... Holmes keeps his cigars in the, he, and most people kept them in a humidor, but he keeps his, you know, in the coal scuttle. What, you know, what would that look like? And, and, uh, you know, just, just little things. You want to see what they look like and what they were, what they dealt with. So um, in the, the one the book before this, the three locks take place during a really sweltering hot summer. And so, like, I thought, I wrote a little couple of annotations about how did Victorians keep cool and when it was a heat they do for refrigeration in their in their uh, kitchens? Um, how you know, how did they take refreshment? What did they you know? How did they manage? Because they had to wear a lot of clothes back then. <laughs> yeah, they were lots of layers. So so you know, things like that are, are interesting to me, but I don't want to clutter up the storytelling with them. So I put them in annotations. And now uh, and I think it, it adds a layer of fun if you're interested in, in that sort of thing.
0: I did not know you did that, but that's something I am I want to look up. You know, this book is just particularly joyous, I think, to read. It's a, it's a perfect Christmas present for, for anybody who reads Sherlock Holmes and anybody really who, who reads because it's pretty easy to grok what's going on. Everybody knows who Holmes and Watson are. You don't need a lot of setup. You don't need to have an origin story or any of that. You can just plop us right into the the adventure and, and as you say uh, there are two mysteries at hand here and i think that that's a you know an interesting and not an uncommon tactic so talk about this you know the 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 two mystery factor and almost any mystery you read these days there's going to be more than one thing to be solved and i think that you handled that really well in in the Holmes world
1: oh well thank you that that was another Um, choice that I made at the very beginning of this series was that once I expanded uh, Holmes to be a novel length, or in this case a novella, um, that it would need more uh, more mystery than a single short story would. The structure of the storytelling would have to be different. But rather than put like concatenating these mysteries like here's one and then it ends here's another and then it ends you know like that i wanted to draw them both through most of the length of the piece uh, and if i could convolve them in some way um so i did that more uh, probably more convolving in some of the earlier books than in this one but um but i did i also like to think of um a theme for my books and typically for Detective or crime fiction, you don't have a theme. I mean, the theme is usually something like crime doesn't pay. (laughs) Something really, really simple again. There's not really a theme, theme. But I like to. um, There's a lot. There's there's a lot of very interesting parallels um, between uh, the late Victorian times and our times right now in terms of uh, the rate of change, changing. (laughs) It was similarly tumultuous and just it changed every the fabric of everyone's lives similarly to ours now uh so like the the information revolution and what's happened with computers and social media has been the you know a, a parallel change to what happened in the industrial revolution and communications and all kinds of things back then so so it um so in order to kind of have some of that Built in, I, I, I decided to have a theme really for these these books. Each one has its own theme, um, and usually it's related to the title. This one is "What Child Is This," and I thought, okay, well, I, that famous Christmas song, "What Child Is This," which is sung to the tune of Greensleeves. By the way, there are two thousand versions of that Christmas carol on Spotify. <laughs> Some people go, "I never heard of that song." It's like Turn on Spotify. Two thousand versions, <laughs> you <could laughs> but you probably, probably have
0: one song for the entire Christmas season.
1: <laughs> you you have heard it. You just maybe not did not, but you, you have definitely heard it. And it was it, it's it was already being sung then. So anyway, um, so what child is this? The theme that was like it's like an identity theme. It's like what about children at that time? What what, what was it like? It was to be a vulnerable child at that time, and then also. Um, what if, what if there's some identity issue about your child? Uh, what what kind of identity issues could there be about a child that would confound or confuse or uh, even uh, endanger this child? So I thought of two two parallels, two stories in which that was the theme, basically, um, and it it was uh, it was dangerous to be uh, a child back then. <laughs> Uh, especially a poor child, um, you know. They they were there's was, there's was trade in children um, because they were you know free labor for factories and in and in large country houses and so forth. So, um, you know, if you were a non-protected child, you were endangered basically. And you know, of course, Dickens told some of these stories and lived it himself even. Um, so uh, you know, somewhat earlier than these, but still in the, in the Victorian era. So. So anyway, that 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 whole arena sounded ripe for a good plot <laughs> to be laid on it.
0: You know, you you mentioned uh, Dickens just now, and that's one of the things I couldn't help but think of as I, as I read this book. This is kind of like a, a Dickens meets uh, Doyle, uh, a vision of, of Victorian London. And one of the things I think I, that. Uh, is interesting about the original Sherlock Holmes books is, or stories is that they were often illustrated famously by Sidney Paget, if I think get the name right? And okay. you are lucky enough to have uh, Frank Cho doing some illustrations for this book, which are absolutely delightful and perfectly in character. Uh, talk talk about making that decision where 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 did that come from? Because yay.
1: Oh, I I was thrilled, thrilled to have Frank Cho aboard on this project. The way that happened was um, he is a Sherlockian. He loves Sherlock Holmes. And I met him every uh, January in in New York. There's a big convening of of the American, most of the American Sherlockians. And then some from abroad to come for this There's a big dinner. And there's a whole four days of events and people, you know, uh, have parties and, and socialize. And um, it's all around the BSI, the Baker Street Irregulars, which is the sort of uh, biggest, and uh, it's an invitation only, organization for Sherlockians, But then a lot of other people come to the you don't have to be in the BSI to do the weekend. So anyway, uh, it was there one of these weekends that I met Frank, uh, and I enjoyed him. And it went, you know, I like to draw to him if I'm into art. And I loved his work because he started doing the program covers for these weekends. And they're beautiful. He this, his line drawing is evocative of some of the um, illustrations of that era. I mean, it has a modern feel, too, because he's a comic book artist. He's a, he's a Marvel superstar. He does a lot of their covers. But it also uh, evokes, uh, there's an artist called Franklin Booth who did Pen and Ink. And he, and he actually Frank Cho turned me on to Franklin Booth. And I'm a huge fan now of his work. And, and Frank Cho has, has used some of those techniques, Uh, really, really beautiful line work. And so, um, so anyway, when I decided to do a Christmas novella, then the the next project would be a little bit different from the rest of my series. uh, And it was going to be a novella. I thought, you know, that would be so fabulous if Frank would possibly. So I asked him and he was wanted to, I was Just like so thrilled. So uh, I wrote the thing first and then I gave him the manuscript. And I also gave him suggested scenes that I thought might make you know, good illustrations. And then he asked for more of them. So I gave, him. He, he's ultimately selected which scenes to illustrate, although I, I had suggested some of them. And a couple of them were like, obvious, oh, you gotta do the big action scenes. You gotta do those. Um, but, uh, you know, so he he selected uh, the parts he wanted to do. And then we conferred a lot. So for example, there's a character named Heffy O'Malley. She appears in a couple of the other books. She's an invention of mine. She's a um, 16-year-old. She's a former orphan from the street from East London. And her father was an Irish prize fighter. And her mother was a Jewish school teacher. And she's an orphan child, but she has characteristics of both her parents. (laughs) And she's smarter than hell. And she is very tough. And so she's a a fun character. At the the beginning of this book, she's got a small job with the police, which Holmes had set up for her. So she features in this, and so Frank and I went back and forth. What does Heffy look like, <laughs> you know? And wh- and what kind of clothes was she wearing? Because she's a girl in transition. She's uh, Heffy's a character in trans- transition in this in this um, story. So she's a um, so she she was a street orphan and you know kind of messy looking. But now she's working for the police. It has to be respectable. So what would she be wearing? And So we started a Pinterest file, and I set up a bunch of things for. You know, as sort of uh, research for Frank and so forth, he he chose what he wanted, and he did a beautiful, beautiful job designing her. She she just came to life in his drawing. I'm so thrilled.
0: You know, um, one of the things that that is really interesting about this novel is its vision of Victorian children. There's a fairly terrifying scene at, at you know something that I never even imagined. Would exist, but when you show us that, you just go, "Wow! I never thought about that." Which is a Victorian childcare center, not a good, not a happy place for children. Man, this vision. Uh, talk about uh, the kind of research that you do, and how often the research coughs up story elements for you, and how often you're led to by you know where I want to take this book. Into a really fascinating piece of research.
1: Sure, um, it's interesting you you picked that. Yeah, that is a scary uh, bit. Um, well, uh, it in the late Victorian age, there was suddenly a proliferation of factories. That was part of the Industrial Revolution, and they the factories were worked by well a lot of young women worked in the factories. And they made matches, and they did. They were on this. Various lines of production lines of, paid very poorly, and so what did they do with their children? I mean, who looked after their children? If they weren't lucky enough to live in an extended family, and many of them were not, um, they had to pay someone to look after their children, and they had they were making you know ridiculously awful wages themselves. So they they were, you know sprung up a lot of these you know kind of babysitting services. I mean that that still exists today, but not not quite like this. But there sprung up a lot of, you know, that were, you know, very questionably run. And it also is true that during that time, um, it was very common for even well-heeled mothers and educated mothers to give their children something called baby soothers. And this was a these were little um tinctures of stuff that had laudanum in them. You know, so so they're basically. Oh, you know, giving opiates to babies to keep them napping and quiet. And this was a very common practice. I mean, you can see ads for these tinctures, like in all the magazines, and they're aiming at, you know, upper class women too. So it wasn't just the, yeah, you know, but but they, imagine that you have no money and you have no resources and you've got, you know, 12 squalling children and no help. And, you know, and so that, and you think that this is safe because it's advertised and you can pick it up at any pharmacy cheaply, uh, and it's advertised as you know Mother's Little Helper. So you know, so they, these kids are drugged, and of course, tiny children and and opiates. You know, there's a tiny little margin as to where this is dangerous and it can kill them. This is a little you know. So so this was actually a practice then. So both of these circumstances were in effect. These these child-minding services for the ladies, the young ladies that worked in the factories, and then these, that you drug your infants to shut them out That was just common practice.
0: You know, one of the things about Sherlock Holmes is that he's not only factually intelligent in that he uh, observes the facts of the case and will see see details that other people won't, and you bring this out in this book, he's also emotionally intelligent in that He understands people, and what's really interesting is you do a good job at being somebody who, on one hand, understands people in theory and knows kind of what's a good way to steer a situation or a person, even though he himself is not, quote, a people person. (laughs) He's not good with people, and in person, he's kind of rough and hard, somewhat, you know, not easy to be around. And I think that balancing that, somebody who knows what will work out well for people with somebody who himself does not work out well <laughs> with people, is that that's a really good uh, thing you pull off in this book, a, a feat, I would say.
1: That was, I set out to do that. That was something I really thought about hard before because um, in, in the one Christmas story that Conan Doyle wrote, The Blue Carbuncle*, um, he actually lets uh, the, the main villain off the hook because he discerns that the guy is not going to he's not fit for a life of crime and this was his one and only crime it was a crime of passion to get this girl and he will never do this again and he's pathetic and he doesn't like him or respect him but he doesn't think he's a danger to society so in the spirit of christmas he lets him go that's what happens in the original canon so so yes you're absolutely right holmes is himself not socially adept, really. I mean, he's he's what we would describe as being kind of Asperger's or you know slightly autistic. I mean, that is how he's written, and that's certainly how he's been played in the more recent. Well, actually, all of the all of the uh, uh, film adaptations, but specifically the Cover Badge. But even the Jeremy Brett, which was very true to the canon, he was still kind of very oblivious <laughs> a lot of the time to people's feelings. Um, and certainly didn't, you know, didn't seem like a touchy-feely, friendly kind of guy, exactly. Although he, you could see that he had, he was, he was a deep person and a caring person, and he certainly loved Watson. I mean, there's no question that he, that those two friends would die for each other. Um, so, so, but the point I guess I'm making is that in this one, I decided that okay, I want him to, I want this to ask something of him that isn't usually asked of him. And then I want him to observe, there's somebody who's an obvious villain in here, who is a villain, who does do dangerous, harmful things. And, uh, but he observes something in that man in a split second. And then he gambles on that being right. And then he sets up a thing. And that I wanted, I, to me, that's one of the smarter things he does. <laughs> you know, as Sherlock Holmes says, he, gamb- he realizes it's a gamble because you can't be certain about a person, but he, he gambles based on his observations, which is very Sherlockian. Um, and yeah, he, but he, you're right. Part of it is that he's kind of encyclopedic and he has all these factoids stored in his giant brain and he can pull them out when as needed. But some of it is just an instinct for human nature. And that's what I wanted this to be about. So I set out, purposely going, okay, the crime isn't going to be really about, it's not going to be a murder. It's not a Christmas murder. <laughs> but there has to be jeopardy to somebody. There has to be danger, maybe even some, you know, pain or something, you know, whatever. But but it's not as gory and et cetera as my other books. <laughs> not as that, not that much danger. Um, and there wasn't a murder. So, so how did, how to set that up? And then you have this questionable guy. And you know, we, the reader, don't really know how that's going to go. Um, we know what we want to have happen, you know, as the reader, and we think should happen, but we don't really know that Holmes is going to pull it off or that the legal system is going to back him up. I mean, there's there's a lot of mystery to what's going to happen in 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 actually both of the stories, both of the two stories. So Holmes, uh, Holmes assesses danger, basically. He's very good at that.
0: You know, one of the things I think you do really well in these books, too, is, although he doesn't, we don't see him much in this book, uh, Inspector Lestrade is a wonderful character in this book. You're very generous to him, and I think that this is true of all the characters in this book. You're... You do not write about, I mean, you might write about criminals, but even in the most uh, despicable of them, you seem to understand. And in general, I think you have, uh, you like your characters, which is, I think, really important to make the reader like the book. It doesn't matter, even if the characters are somewhat unlikable, you find them at least interesting and, and complicated. But uh, I think having that, uh, the author like the characters is essentially uh, is really important for the reader to enjoy reading the book.
1: I I agree with you totally, Rick. I I think um, and that's a conscious choice because I think uh, a long time ago I, I don't remember who wrote this. Somebody wrote that you know a book is only as good as its villain, um, and it's only as interesting as the villain is. And a lot of beginning writers make the mistake of making their villain just 100% evil and, you know, kind of simplistic or just, you know, horrible, horrible, horrible. Whereas it's much more interesting if you look at evil in context. That doesn't excuse evil or, you know, in any way. And Holmes doesn't excuse the some of the things that have happened in this book. Um, but he does see a whole person and and I think you know the writer seeing the whole person makes it just that much more interesting. So there are people that do some awful things in this book and people that make mistakes, uh, but you can see why they did. Uh, and I think that makes it more interesting, you know because and um, and also Holmes has to make some, kind of moral choices here, which puts him in a different spot. And I also, you know, Watson is the ultimate moral person. Watson is such a good man. And that's why we like looking at through his lens, because he's he's kind. I mean, he's not stupid at all, He's but he's, he's seeing everything and he's a kind man. And uh, so, I mean, if you read, just read through the entire original canon, He's, you know, he's, the way he talks about people, even people he doesn't like, and he says things like, you know, he was actually a, a nice aristocrat, you know, about somebody. He's like, because he normally hates aristocrats and how they act, but this guy was like actually an okay aristocrat. You know, he's just open to uh, observing the goodness in people, even if he has a prejudice. He's he's quite good that way. So I, to continue that feeling is one of the things. So it's partly Watson too doing.
0: You know, one thing that I think is uh, this book also exemplifies of the beauty of the mystery novel is the ability of a detective to access the lowest and the highest realms of society. And this book is a textbook example of that because you are at at some points, you're in the worst circumstances in the worst slums, and then at other points you're with the highest of the high living aristocrats. And what you do well is to um, create sympathy, but also to understand, you know, that the the foibles of the aristocrats are, are you know equal to those of the uh, uh, of the people who live in terrible circumstances.
1: Well, we're we're all just human. <laughs> and I think Conan Doyle, that was a gift of Conan Doyle was to um uh is to see the humanity in a wide variety of people. And that's you know, that makes the book all the more fun to read because if it's just a condemnation of a whole group of people, it's like that's that's not good writing, <laughs> and, and certainly not good thinking. So um, you know, writing is thinking on the page and you reveal some of yourself when you write. Now I have I've got a mask or a cloak on and then I'm writing as John Watson and I'm writing as Conan Doyle writing as John Watson. And so there's Bonnie behind all of those things. But you can't, you can't avoid putting yourself in there, you know, even with all those layers of <laughs> uh of stuff. And so, you know, I, I try to really think about what I'm saying with this story. it has to, it has to resound, it has to be feel okay to me. Um because there's I think the world is a pretty scary place, frankly, uh, and uh, lots of terrible stuff is going on. And what where what am I doing in this? I'm writing copy Shaw Holmes how silly or whatever. but in in a sense, I'm trying to put something back in the world uh, and, and that helps, this sounds so pretentious as I'm saying it. I'm like, Oh no, <laughs> oh, Lord. Oh my God. So, uh, but I, I am trying to put something good in there. I'm trying to put, put you know, because Sherlock Holmes is sort of a beacon uh, for a lot of people. And I mean, if you go to a gathering of Sri people are really, really into this, I mean, people are teary about this, that if only somebody with the wisdom and the Sense of justice and kindness and sort of worldview of Holmes and Watson and were running things. We'd be in better shape. I,
0: I I agree, and one thing I think you do really well in this book is, as you noted earlier, there are a lot of parallels between that late Victorian era and the current twenty first century in terms of the rate of change and also, you know, the migration of people that there was a lot of migration then. And what you do is what extremely well in this book is to deal with things that are specifically, you know, somewhat issues of now and but take them back to then. And I think that that was a really interesting, uh, the way, you, you know, to treat today's issues through yesterday's lens and see that these things aren't you know the things we think oh my god this is just no this has never happened before you know it's been it's, happening for a long damn time
1: exactly exactly yeah i've had uh i've had a couple of snarky uh reviewers yeah or critics on uh amazon's over this snarked a little bit about that um yeah as if it were not happening then as if no so the whole point is just like you know you're cra- totally crazy so so like i i had i had a character in there that um you know is is a kind of person who is you know has made the news recently a kind of person um but this person in the book is not a symbol it's an individual and there are indiv- there were absolutely individuals in that situation then plenty of them <laughs> And 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 did my research, you know, and but I, I didn't even have to research that because human beings have always been human beings, and the, the entire gamut, you know, they may have different modes of expression, they may be legal or illegal during different times, etc. But the fact is that that um, you know Sherlock Holmes himself is kind of a marginalized person.
0: He oh yeah, I know, he's, no, he's as a
1: bohemian, you're... you know
0: mentioned yeah. earlier he's definitely on the spectrum as you would say
1: yes he's definitely on the spectrum and and also he just he doesn't have a really respectable job in a lot of people's views he's you know he deals with dirty things and crimes and criminals and he's out in the streets looking around and that's not what a gentleman does so i mean there's you know he's and even a doctor uh the doctors get their hands dirty so the doctors even a doctor is you know kind of I mean they're respected, they're a professional man, but they're but they're but they get their hands dirty so they, you know in, in but other he's ways, also were,
0: an amateur too, as you point out. He's considered yeah, an amateur. And I he's an
1: amateur, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I and, thought and that, that
0: was very interesting because <laughs> there is nobody more professional than Sherlock Holmes, but he's also he is in fact an amateur in many ways.
1: So. Yeah, well, amateur in the original meaning of the word, which is it's taking a different connotation now here, it means like, you know, not somebody not very good at something or a beginner at it, maybe, uh, who, you know, an amateur, the word amateur sounds like you're not really serious about this thing. You're just kind of toying around with, you're an amateur painter. So you, you know, you dabble on the weekends, but uh, amateur really means, you know, somebody who loves something, you know, and who really focuses on it. And it just maybe means that they aren't doing it as a profession that doesn't have anything to do with how intensely or well they do it. So um, and also uh, so the the whole notion, yes, he's he's derided sometimes by the police and he's derided by upper class people who think he's just working with the police, which is kind of dirty and gross and uh, criminals and stuff. So, So I mean, he yeah, he doesn't fit in really cleanly into society um, and and Watson who's you know more he's he's got a more sure rung on the, on the ladder but uh but he's a doctor so it's doctors then were not revered quite as highly as they are now um, so anyway they are not uh they don't have a lot of influence but but Holmes was the only thing we know about him from the original canon is that his His family were country squires, meaning they were landowners. Uh, And it it conveys a certain, you know, they probably had a certain amount of wealth. So he obviously had an education. He speaks as an educated man. And uh, he clearly went to university, although he dropped out or was kicked out. (laughs) And so, but he continued his own education. So he's kind of an autodidact.
0: Exactly that, and that's a word also you use to describe Hepzibah as well, if I'm
1: not mistaken. Yeah, yeah, is an autodidact. That's why he I'm... admires her because she's a very aggressive learner, and um, but she's also stubborn about herself. She's still going to use her Cockney language unless he can convince her otherwise. <laughs> um, but you know, so because she doesn't want to get ahead of herself in the in the classic uh, way, but but she yeah she is totally uh, autodidact as well. Um, which is something that's just a that is just a word I love because I I I love people who are autodidacts. I have a friend who didn't finish university, and he knows more and is one of the smarter people I know on the planet. And he knows more about literature and about science and about everything because he's an autodidact and a fiend at it. So he's incredibly knowledgeable, even though he doesn't have the letters after his name. So so this is something I, I personally really admire. <laughs> and um yeah so anyway um uh yeah, so, so yeah so holmes is he fits in a weird he's kind of in a weird uh limbo socially but he, he he flies easily between the different levels he he knows how to fit in anywhere really
0: where will you take holmes and watson next you know <laughs>
1: well yeah i do <laughs> Uh, the next one is going to be in London uh, because because I'm still in kind of lockdown here. Um, I can't really travel around uh, right now. So, um, so I'm going to keep it in London because I can do the research here and I know the city. And uh, uh, usually I like to location scout when I'm writing. So uh, the next one is going to be in London and I have the arena uh, for it. And I have the, the theme. It's called It's called the Serpent Under and um i don't want to give too much away but it, it, it snakes will play a, a, will play a part but snakes literally and snakes figuratively um and there's there's three different stories that can involve in this one but there's a horrendous crime that takes place uh at windsor castle and that's the first thing they get pulled in on
0: you know uh, one of the things that uh occurs to me, as you having spent some time in Hollywood, uh, would, the, would there be any chance that we would see, you know, some kind of like high-class adaptation of these, uh, you know, on Netflix or one of the channels or as movies? I, I think they'd be better as series, really, just because you get more story in a series. Uh, you know, turn yeah, a 200-page just... book into a two-hour novel or two-hour movie. You know, you're only gonna get get... 30 percent story
1: exactly i i see these as a this this series would make a fantastic limited series for like Netflix or something yeah it would be perfect because they i mean they almost have built-in cliffhangers and they are they're structured that way and it would be perfect. <laughs> I'm waiting by the bump.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: but actually, I might I might at some point. The problem is they've kept me so busy uh, writing these. I, they're not quick for me to write. They take me quite a while. Uh, but I have been uh, thinking about adapting. Adapting maybe the first one to, you know, uh, two or three episodes of a limited series to see if I can get some action on it.
0: You you know, one thing that strikes me is that you are well known in your biography for for having written the screenplay to Tron, uh, you know, groundbreaking science fiction story. And I think that there's a lot of simpatico between Holmes and the science fiction genre. You know, Holmes spends about as much time extrapolating as Ray Bradbury or Isaac Asimov.
1: Yeah. I mean, he's a scientific thinker for sure. Absolutely. You know, there's an interesting, huge crossover between Star Trek fans, of which I am one and Sherlockians huge crossover because of course Spock is a, is a kind of um, and um, yeah. And so there's, there's a huge, huge overlap there. (laughs) And uh, yeah, I mean, the, The triumph of rational thinking and, you know, the projection of science into a positive future, you know, a hopeful future is one of the, uh, one of the crossover ideas.
0: A hopeful future includes a new Sherlock Holmes novel every year from Bonnie McBurge. Her latest work is What Child Is This? Thank you for joining me, Bonnie.
1: Thank you, Rick. It's a pleasure to be here.